Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Who is like the wise, who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although a man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, or who can tell him how it is to be, how it will be. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my privilege to uh, share with you the Word of God this morning. Could you now join me in bowing your heads and asking for the Lord's blessing as we get ready to hear His Word? Father, we thank you once again for your faithfulness, for your goodness, evidenced by the fact that you have summoned us each by name to come and to gather together, to come under your Word. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us to our helpless estate where we are just pathetically groping in the dark, trying to find our way, trying to figure out this life that is so dark and riddled with so many confusing things. Lord, you are a God who is light. You are a God who is faithful. You give us your word to guide us. You give us your word to forgive us. You give us your word to give us new life and to transform us. And so, once again, we come eagerly wanting to be fed by your word. You are the great shepherd, Jesus. We are your flock. Would you now feed us as the great shepherd? And would you teach us so that our minds would be renewed? so that we would discern what is good, what is right, what is beautiful, and no longer fall into the deceptive ways of Satan, who would try to offer us counterfeit things that are just rubbish in the sight of your precious blessings that you give to us. And so, Lord, would you bless us now, especially in spite of the messenger who brings today's message. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as you guys can tell, today's passage of scripture comes to us from the book of Ecclesiastes, and many of you who've been with us for quite a while are probably confused at this moment, and the reason why you're confused is because a few weeks ago, I stood on this very spot saying that we are done with this book, right? We're not coming back to this book uh, anytime this year, and due to pressing demands of other topics that I wanted to speak about Uh, Before Christmas came, we prematurely ended this series, even though we've gone through it for 12 weeks, we could have gone a lot longer, but we prematurely ended this series in the anticipation with the hopes that maybe we could come back to it. But here we are back at Ecclesiastes 8, and you're thinking, what gives, Pastor? How come you said a few weeks ago we were done with this book for now, but now you're back here? Well, that should tell you something. Something changed. Something happened. And you're thinking, what happened? What transpired to where you are now speaking on this issue? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Last week, one of our dearest sisters was offering up a prayer during one of our worship service. And as she always offers up beautiful prayers, she started talking about the presidential elections. And as soon as she started talking about the election, she started crying. And as I heard through her tear-filled voice, I discerned a lot of frustration, a lot of fear. 
And as her pastor and also as your pastor, I could not in good conscience pass off the opportunity and really the responsibility that I have to help you discern in light of the times that we're living in today. And so here we are coming back to Ecclesiastes, picking up where we left off in chapter 8. And if you remember what we said when we went through this series, we said that the author of this book, King Solomon, is addressing the various issues in life that we go through that make us do this. That make us breathe out the sigh, the breath of air that represents our fears, our frustrations, our fed upness as we live in a world that seems to go against us all the time, right? In the Hebrew, Solomon refers to this breath of air frustration known as the sigh that he calls hebel. In our English Bible translations, it's simply referred to as vanity or maybe meaninglessness. Well, today, he's going to talk about the one thing that has caused many people in our country today for the past year go all the time, and that is politics. Specifically, what do you do when you live in a society where it's run or led by or potentially led by people that make you just want to go all the time? How do we as followers of Christ live in a political world that we do when it seems to be run by people or could be run by people that make us very, very scared? Well, that's the issue that Solomon is going to address, and he's going to answer that question for us with three answers. Number one, he tells us first, obey the king for the sake of others. Obey the king for the good sake of others. Number two, work hard to undermine the king with wisdom. And finally, number three, remember who the true king is. So those are the three things that Solomon is going to address today. First, obey the king for the good of others. Work hard to undermine the king with wisdom. And finally, remember who the true king is. So let's jump right into the first point. First, obey the king for the good of others. Let's read again our passage, starting in verse 2, where Solomon writes these words. I say, keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. Now notice... Solomon begins verse 2 with a command. What does he say? Keep the king's command, or as another translation simply puts it, obey the king. Now the fact that Solomon has to give this command to us in the first place assumes something about this king that he's referring to, right? What is he saying in the subtext when he gives us this command, obey the king? Is he not strongly indicating, is he not strongly implying that this is a king that we do not want to obey? Isn't he alluding to a wicked king, an evil king, right? A king who we would have no natural desire, no inner compulsion to follow his orders, to agree to his plans, or to support his agenda. Indeed, that is the kind of king that he's referring to, especially when you consider the political climate that is surrounding this king down in verse 9. Listen to what he says in verse 9. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man, a king, had power over man... To his hurt. To his hurt. See, the king that Solomon referring here in our passage is not a righteous king, not a king who you would naturally gravitate towards with support and encouragement. No, this is a wicked, unrighteous king that you would despise and mistrust, which is why Solomon, under the inspirational authority of the Holy Spirit, gives this command to the people of God. Obey the king. Now think about that for a moment. Think about the significance of that idea, because what this tells us is that there have been many moments throughout the history of mankind where God's people had to deal with political leaders who, according to their assessment, were not good leaders. Maybe they were even downright evil, wicked leaders. 
In fact, if you consider and survey the various tyrants that the people of God had to come under, oh, I don't know, people like Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Cyrus of Persia, Herod, Herod the Great of Judea, Emperor Nero of Rome. I mean, when you consider, if you do some historical analysis of some of these leaders that God's people had to be under, they make our current political leaders look like harmless, cute little puppies in comparison. Which is why it magnifies, does it not, the seemingly audaciousness of Solomon's command. Solomon, Solomon, did you just tell us, did you tell God's people that we need to obey this kind of a tyrant, this kind of a king, this kind of political leader? What are you thinking, Solomon? What is going through your mind? What sort of justification do you have to where you would tell God's people that we need to obey the political leaders even if they're profoundly wicked, profoundly evil people? Well, he tells us in the second half of verse 2. Listen to what he says. Because of God's oath to him. Wow. That sounds terrible. Solomon says, Christian, follower of God, you need to obey the king because God made an oath to a king, to that king. And you're thinking, what? What?" First of all, what is God doing in the first place making any oath to such a wicked king? I mean, if you didn't know any better, it almost sounds as if he is endorsing such a wicked king. And that does not make God look good, right? It almost kind of have the same flavor in our culture today when people see Christians endorsing and affiliating themselves with their certain kinds of political parties or certain kind of political candidates. Is that what's going on here? Is, is this what this issue is, that God favors a certain kind of political leader or he favors a certain kind of political ideology? No. I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think that's how you should understand this notion of God's oath to the king. Well, then what does it mean? Well, let me explain. In the Bible, whenever it refers to a king, it's never simply referring to the king as a private individual. It's never simply referring to the king as an individual person. Whenever the Bible is centering a story around a particular king, it always has in mind the people to whom the king represents because, after all, The king is not just individual. He is a head of state. He is a representative. He is a corporate representative. He is a public figure. Okay? So when you have that in mind, you come to understand that when Solomon is saying that God made an oath to a king, he's not referring to a particular individual that he's made an oath to, but he's saying that God made an oath to the people who are being represented through the king. That is what it's referring to. And so with that in mind, we come to that question, well, what is this oath that God makes to various people groups across this globe represented by their various head of state? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to go back to the early pages of Scripture, which corresponds to the early pages of history. If you look at the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, you read the story of Adam and Eve, our very first parents, the very first human beings that ever existed. And you read the story of how they disobeyed God by eating from a tree that God specifically said, do not eat from. But of course they do. And in rebellion, they cause the downfall of mankind to where there's such atrocity and there's such lawlessness happening because of this original sin that happened. And the story goes on to tell us that Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel, two brothers. And the story goes on to tell us that Cain, out of murderous hatred for his brother because he was so envious of him, murders his own brother. He murders Abel. When God responds in punishment, what does Cain do? He starts having a meltdown. He starts freaking out. He starts crying with snot coming out of his nose and mouth, and he's overwhelmed with fear. Why? 
Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, starting in the 13th verse. It reads this. Cain replied to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. Cain, in light of his murdering of his brother, is now no longer under the protective custody of God. And as a result, he is cursed. He is punished to wander the earth as a vagabond where he... Knowing that the world is not what it used to be because of his parents' original sin. He knows that the world is not safe anymore. It's lawless. It's filled with debauchery. He's thinking, man, anyone can just come up to me for no reason and just kill me. And no one's going to stop it. No one's going to get me justice. This is not fair. To which God responds the following in verse 15 of Genesis 4. Hear what he says. The Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. In reflecting on these very verses, a renowned Old Testament scholar by the name of Meredith Klein writes these words, quote, The Lord gave Cain an oath, assuring him that it would not be the case that anyone who came upon him would be free to kill him with impunity. God's face would not be hidden. It was rather his purpose to establish a judicial office to execute vengeance sevenfold, that is, complete divine retributions. The scripture identifies the state's avenging function as an execution of God's wrath, end quote. What is Dr. Klein telling us here? He's telling us that in accordance to Genesis chapter 4, even though this world is entirely corrupted due to sin, because every human heart that walks on this world is corrupted due to sin, nevertheless, God has made a promise that this world will not become hell on earth. You see, God made a universal oath to all mankind represented by his particular oath to Cain that he is going to create an institution, civil government, the state, to ensure that there would not be careless, reckless, rampant, violent theft and rape and stealing and so forth. In other words, God ensured, he made an oath to all mankind that this world will not be as bad as it could possibly be. He will refrain, he will undermine, he will minimize all of that through the institution of the state. And that is the oath that he made to mankind. And that is the oath that Solomon is referring to here in our passage. So putting all this together, what does it mean? It means this, as followers of Christ, we need to honor our political leaders no matter who they are. And no, it's not because they deserve our honor. It's not because they're good people. It's not even because they're great leaders. But rather because by honoring our leaders, we preserve the state's ability to maintain law and order so that society does not fall apart, so that God's oath to his creation stands firm. Hear me when I say this, Christian. You need to understand this principle. History has shown us whenever there have been attempts by citizens, and I'm not talking about other nations, but when citizens within a government try to topple over a tyrannical leader, even if it's noteworthy and noble, even if this person deserves to be toppled over, when private citizens work above the law to try and meet that goal, there's always tragedy that ends as the result. There's always collateral damage. There's always innocent people that die because of it. I mean, this is why Solomon gives this stern warning in verse 3. Listen to what he says up there. Quote, Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he, the king, does whatever he pleases. What is he saying? 
Well, let me tell you with a quick illustration. So there's been a lot of tension right now in our country in the context of race and law enforcement. With the growing technology of media, it's been come to our social attention that there are a lot of corrupt police officers who abuse their authority, who do things that are truly wrong and are, and are above the law. And as a result, there's been a movement developing that has really overreached its justification to where now they justify actions like looting, vandalizing, maybe even killing people. And some of those people who end up getting hurt, some who get killed as a result of their movement are innocent people. Some of them are even victims of the people who they're protesting against. How ironic how you have a movement that is stirred by the evil atrocities of a certain authority and the movement advocates, we're speaking on behalf of the victims and yet some of the victims that they create are the very victims that were hurt by those very same authorities that they are imploring against. Here is an incident where you have a movement that is motivated to topple down an evil authority figure but becomes evil itself because the unintended consequences of collateral damage. Christian, you need to understand this point, and you need to understand it well. We are to live as good citizens, to where even if we have wicked political leaders, the response as followers of Christ should never be, let's undermine our leaders, our wicked leaders, by undermining the social fabric, undermining the governmental stability of our society. Because if you do that, you end up causing more damage than what you could consciously live with yourself. A lot of innocent people will suffer and die, possibly because of it. This is why Solomon says, obey the king, not because of the king, but rather for the sake, for the good of others. Because you don't want innocent victims hitting the crossfires of your attack of this king. We obey the king for the good of others. We honor our political leaders for the sake of social stability. Listen to how one pastor by the name of James Boyce puts it. He writes this, quote, The state has a legitimate sphere. Christians should be respectful of that legitimacy even more than others because they know that God has established it. Christians can never be entirely pragmatic at this point, still less opportunistic. They can never knowingly try to overthrow a legitimate government simply because they would prefer different type of government or different people in government, still less because they want to rule themselves. Within a democracy, there are legitimate procedures for changing rulers, and these are open to Christians. Revolution, for its own sake, or for the sake of the revolutionaries themselves, are excluded, end quote. As Christians, we are to promote the common good, which involves political and social stability to what we can do, okay? And part of that means we have to honor our political leaders by not trying to destroy the government as a way to destroy them. Now, some of you are like, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Let's see what the conclusion is to what you just said. Are you saying, Pastor, that in accordance to verse 2 of what Solomon's saying here in Ecclesiastes 8, that we should just blindly obey our political leaders, that we should never go up against them, that we should never resist, that we should always just approve of everything that they do, and that we should just stay silent and be good little boys, good little girls? What if we have a leader that commands us to do something that's contrary to our faith? What if they say it's illegal to worship in churches, or it's illegal, you know, to live the Christian life? Are you saying then, Pastor, that it's okay to just blindly accept their policies and their laws? Are you saying that it's never right for a Christian to ever oppose their political leaders? No. 
I'm not saying that at all. In fact, as I hope to show you in just a moment, Solomon says, oh, yes, there are moments where you're called to oppose your leaders and to explain those moments. Let me go to my next point. Work hard to undermine the king with wisdom. Read again with me our passage, starting from verse 3 all the way down to verse 6. Solomon writes, be not hasty to go from his, the king's presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's troubles lies heavy on him. Here, Solomon tells us that though we are required to honor our political leaders for the sake of others, that does not mean we always and just blindly follow every order that they give to us. It doesn't mean that we just always accept every policy that they hand down and that we just always obey them. Solomon tells us, no, there are moments where, yes, you need to resist, you need to oppose. In fact, you need to even undermine your political leaders at times. But, but, there is a proper way and a proper method of doing it. Listen to what he says in verse 5 and 6. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way, for there is a time and a way for everything. Now, Let's just linger for just a moment to what we just read. Solomon has just stated that there are times in which we need to oppose our leaders, not because it's simply permissible, but because, to use his own words, it's proper and just. Which means what? It means there are times where if you are not opposing your political leaders, if you're not going against them when it's required for you to go against them, you are wrong. You are living in sin. You are not living in accordance to what God has called you to live as you live in this world. And so the question then becomes, well, how exactly do we oppose our political leaders, right? If we already know how we don't do it from the previous point, we don't try to destroy government, we don't try to riot, we don't try to vandalize, we don't try to harm anyone else, how do we do it? Well, I have good news and I have bad news. And typically, because we always start with the bad news, let's start there. You want the bad news? Here it is. That is a very hard question to answer. That is a very difficult question to answer. How and when and over what issues do you have legitimate God-given right to oppose your political leaders? How do you do it, and how do you do it in a way to where it doesn't cause any major unintended harm? That is a hard question to answer. Those are hard series of questions to answer. In fact, Solomon himself says it's very hard in answering those questions. Listen again to what he says in verse 6. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's troubles lies heavy on him. What is he saying? He's saying, look, even though there are going to be moments where you are legitimately entitled and even commanded by God to oppose your leaders, that's heavy. That's difficult. It's hard to grasp your arms around and lift and to try and navigate through. That's what he's saying. It is very hard, it is very difficult in trying to figure out how and when and over what issues in which you should oppose your political leaders. It's hard. Listen again, Pastor James Boyce, he goes on to say this, quote, The state sometimes functions as it should. At other times, it functions in a demonic way. Under normal circumstances, the church is to be thankful for the state and obey it. On the other hand, The church must also be ready to challenge the state in the name of God and his righteousness and even disobey the state whenever its laws conflict with the laws of God. 
It is not always easy to determine which of the two situations one is in, however, if only because the dilemmas confronting a Christian citizen are often not clear-cut. So there it is, the bad news. It is hard, it is difficult to discern how we should oppose our leaders when they need to be opposed, when we should oppose them when they need to be opposed, and over what issues that warrants us to push back against them. But are you ready for some good news now? Here's the good news. Even though it's incredibly hard in figuring out what the answers are to those questions, it's not impossible. It's kind of like dieting. Even though it's hard to lose weight, it's not impossible. Right? All of you are like, oh, I don't think that was a good analogy here. Right? Now I'm even more hopeless. No. Scripture says, yes, even if it's though it is hard, it is not impossible. Because according to Solomon, there is a means, there is a way in which you can get the answers to these very complicated questions. And what is that? What is that way? What does that mean? Verse 1. Read it again. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. You know, if you ask most people today in our country what they think about our current presidential cycle, most of them get a little annoyed to where their face gets visibly hardened, right? They'd be like, Trump, (laughs) Hillary, you know, their face literally gets hardened, right? And yet Solomon says it is possible to live in the political environment that we are living in right now, and you can have your face shining with joy. You can have such a lighthearted face to where there's peace visibly being represented through your mind. And Solomon says, how do you do that? Wisdom. Wisdom. If you acquire wisdom, you will be able to navigate through all the complexities of the debates and arguments that are surrounding a certain political environment to where you can discern how, when, and over what to which you should legitimately and, by God's command, oppose your political leaders. Now, of course, when I refer to wisdom, I'm obviously including biblical wisdom. Yes, of course. How else are you going to know what laws of man are working against the laws of God unless you know the laws of God, which come from a diligent study of Scripture. So yes, biblical wisdom is the foundation, and it's the most important wisdom to which you can discern these things. But Solomon goes on to say that you don't just need biblical wisdom. You need other forms of wisdom as well, such as political wisdom. You know, this might be weird for you to hear in a church, but believe it or not, Scripture does call us to acquire wisdom. And that's more than just knowing your Bible and knowing your theology, right? God calls us to also know political wisdom, to know these things. One theologian by the name of Karl Barth put it this way poignantly. Every Christian should have two things in his hand. On one hand, he should have a Bible. On the other hand, he should have a newspaper. But, he says, always read your newspaper in light of what the Bible says. But here's the sad truth, folks. Most Christians in America today, most Korean Christians in America today, don't do the equivalent of reading their newspaper, right? They are completely clueless. They are completely ignorant. They are completely unaware of what's going on politically. When, in fact, you should be listening, you should be hearing, you should be watching, you should be reading, you should be educating yourself with what's going on in your country, in the nation that you are a citizen of, politically. And yet, so many of us, if we're honest, we don't care. 
We don't care what's going on in the Congress. We don't care what's going on in the Oval Office. We don't care what's going on in state government. We don't care what's going on in City Hall. Some of us don't even vote. Brothers, sisters, part of your commission that God has given you to be a blessing to the world is to be civically involved and civically engaged. John Frame, a theologian who I greatly admire, puts it this way, quote, Each Christian is a citizen of two nations, an earthly nation like France, England, or the USA, and the heavenly nation, the church. Though we belong entirely to Christ, we do not on that account renounce our citizenship in the earthly nations any more than we leave our earthly families. Indeed, we seek to be good citizens for those earthly nations themselves and their rulers receive their authority from God. You need to be civically involved, civically engaged, civically educated so that you can apply the biblical wisdom that you should be learning and do learn now and be able to apply it in such a way so that you can discern how, when, and over what issues to which you are given the God-given demand of opposing your political leaders if it is necessary. Now, just in case a lot of this seems a little too abstract for you, let me read to you a true story that I came across in my study as I prepared for this message. I want to read to you the true story of a Christian by the name of Helmut von Moltke. Helmut von Moltke, he's German. Take a listen to this story as I read it to you. Quote, Helmut von Moltke was drafted to work in counterintelligence for Nazi Germany. Yet his Christian faith made him a resolute opponent of Adolf Hitler. Although he believed it would be wrong for him to use violent force against the Nazis, Von Moltke used his high position to rescue many prisoners from certain death. Not surprisingly, eventually, he was accused of treason, put on trial, and sentenced to die. In his final letter home to his beloved wife Freya, Helmuth described the dramatic moment at his trial when the judge launched into a tirade against his faith in Christ. Only in one respect does the national socialism resemble Christianity, he shouted. We demand the whole man. Then the judge asked the accused to declare his ultimate loyalty. From whom do you take your orders? From the other world or from Adolf Hitler? Where lie your loyalty and your faith? Von Moltke knew exactly where his loyalty lay. He had put all his hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Therefore, he stood before his earthly judge as a Christian and nothing else. His faith had enabled him to act wisely in government service, and now it enabled him to act wisely when he faced his final hour. As a believer in Christ, Von Moltke understood the difference between the proper exercise of authority and the abuse of power. He also knew the wise course of action when he was under someone else's control and in danger for his very life. Here is a man who to a T followed Solomon's wisdom in Ecclesiastes 8. He didn't directly oppose Hitler, but he was innocent as a dove, but he was conniving as a snake. He got involved, he was educated, he knew how the system worked, and he used that knowledge against the system to where he was able to save people's lives, lives that he could not have saved if he just went up and tried to take out Hitler on his own. There is wisdom that is required as you live as a civic citizen in this world as a Christian. You need to get involved, you need to get engaged, you cannot isolate yourself, you cannot be in a corner thinking that what happens in Capitol Hill, what happens in the state government, what happens in City Hall won't affect you or your commitment to being a blessing to this world. It will. It will. 
and you need to be involved because when you do, then you acquire wisdom that is colored by the wisdom of Scripture so you can have discernment and understanding of how to work a corrupt system against itself for the glory of God. Now, with all that said, Solomon doesn't end it here. There's one more thing that he wants us to remember before he lets us go from today's civic lesson. And this leads me to my final point. Remember who the true king is. Read again with me verse 8. Solomon writes, No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Here, Solomon wants us to remind us of something something that we can easily forget when we're in a very tense political environment like we are in tonight. Oh, excuse me, not tonight. This year. Okay? And that is what? Solomon is saying, don't forget, your political leaders, they are not God. One more time. Your political leaders, says Solomon, they are not God. They don't have ultimate power. They cannot control the wind. They cannot control the day of death or at least reverse it. They cannot overcome death. They cannot deliver God's judgment for wickedness that was done by wicked people. These leaders, these political leaders, as powerful as they may seem to you, do not warrant the kind of fear and hopelessness that so many people can feel thinking that their livelihood, their children, their life is ultimately in danger. No. Solomon says, do not be afraid that way. Do not panic. Do not do something stupid in your panic, okay? Do not align yourselves with people you shouldn't align yourself with because you're so afraid. Solomon is saying, remember who the true king is, and it's not your political leader. It's not. Who is the true king? Psalm 97, starting in verse 1, says this, The Lord is king. Let the earth rejoice. Let the farthest coastlands be glad. Dark clouds surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire spreads ahead of him and burns up all his foes. His lightning flashes out across the earth. The earth sees it and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. Every nation sees his glory. Those who worship idols are disgraced. All who brag about their worthless gods, for every god must bow to him. Jerusalem is heard and rejoiced, and all the towns of Judah are glad because of your justice, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are supreme over all the earth. You are exalted above all the gods. God is the king. The Lord is the king. Charles Drew, a pastor, says this. I have found Psalm 97 to be very helpful. It calls our hearts back to their proper center and for that reason serves as a manifesto on first principles for Christian citizenship. Christians need never panic since our God rules everything. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Notice that reigns is a political word. It describes a king exercising dominion over his subjects. The ancient equivalent roughly of saying President so-and-so sits in the Oval Office. Of course, verse 1 says much more. We elect American presidents for a brief time. Their reign is neither permanent nor absolute nor flawless nor worldwide, whereas God's is all for. His rule causes the earth to be glad and the distant shores to rejoice. Verse 9 declares his absolute sovereignty over all authorities, whether seen or unseen. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. What an encouragement. What a source of confidence and joy for the believer. God is in charge absolutely. Get an amen. 
Can I get an amen? amen. We'll work on that. God is in charge absolutely because he is the true king. He is the one who has the power to prevent someone from dying. He is the one who has the power to reverse death. He is the one who can deliver the right wrath of God from those who are given into wickedness. This is our king. This is our political leader. He is this king. He has that power. And the reason why I know this is because he already did it. Because when he became a man, Jesus Christ, he suffered tremendous suffering throughout his life that culminated in his death on the cross. Why? So that he could give you forgiveness of sins? Yes. So that he could give you eternal life? Of course. But also so that you would know without a shadow of a doubt that the true king, the one with all the power, that same king loves you. He's the kind of political leader who puts your needs ahead of his own needs. He's the kind of king who puts your life ahead of his own life. Your livelihood ahead of his own livelihood. That is what the gospel teaches us. And so I end with this charge to you. Christian, you do not need to be afraid this upcoming January. You do not need to be afraid because a certain political leader will be sitting in the chair of the Oval Office starting January 20th. Why? Because you have a political leader who sits on his heavenly throne in heaven for all eternity. And this leader of ours... He's for you. He's for your family. He's for your livelihood. He's for your life. So much so that he put up his so that your life would never be ultimately threatened. So that your family would not be ultimately threatened. So that your livelihood and your legacy would not be ultimately threatened. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? My prayer is that as you go to the ballot box this Tuesday, and as you ponder all the various things that you're going to ponder, I hope that you will ponder this the most. That no matter what button you push, no matter what lever you pull down, the true political leader, the one to whom we trust the most, is still in charge, and he rules over all, and he will always rule for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we move forward, to this new tipping point into our political society that you give us courage. Father, whoever we vote for, whatever affiliation we are a part of, we hope and pray that we would be united in our ultimate allegiance to your kingdom. That our allegiance would not be to any man or woman, but it would be to our king who is the Lord of all. And Father, whether that means advocating for certain values in one political party or advocating for another set of values in another political party, but all values equally push for the same kingdom, Lord, we do pray that you'll grant us wisdom, that we would be diligent in not only studying our Bibles, but reading our papers, that being involved in debate and discussion, not so that we can be argumentative, not so that we could win, not so that we can have power, not so that we could just have a voice, but Lord, so that we could be the blessing to which you've called us to be. Lord, we live in a cursed-filled world, and you have commissioned your people to be representatives of you in every sphere of life, in the family, in the workplace, and in government. And so, God, would you grant us that wisdom, and would you guide us with biblical principles and political principles that are grounded in Scripture so that we could have a united front of seeking to manifest the greatest kingdom of all, of the greatest political leader of all, you, Lord Jesus. 
For we pray in your holy name. Amen. We're now going to give God his tithes on our offering. For those of you who are visiting us, we don't expect you to give. But to our members, let's give God his tithes on our offerings. <laughs>